Again, good morning. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to make your way to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, I think it's important that we we look at and read God's Word together. And so if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to grab one from the pew rack. You can find today's passage on 928. We're going to look this morning at verses 11 through 41, a pretty large section of Scripture, but it's one continuous story, one continuous thought, and so we need to read it together. But Acts 19, 11 through 41, and before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word and ask his favor on the next few moments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And your word works because it's living and inspired by the Spirit and uh, infallible. You've given us your word for doctrine, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. And so do, do your work within us this morning. Help us to see our sin and then run to our Savior. As Caleb was speaking a moment ago, maybe, maybe there's someone in here and they're not in the stage of life as a college student, 18 to 23 but they feel that way. Uh, The pressures of life are overwhelming. A particular struggle away from family, uh, longing for friends, a job or the lack of a job perhaps. And I pray that in these moments we would find rest in Christ, for Christ says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, that's why we come to you week in and week out. Not not so that we would leave this place with burdens heaping upon us about what we must do, but because we're refreshed and reminded of what Christ has done. And so let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, let's read 19, chapter 19, verses 11 through the end of the chapter 41. This is God's holy word. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That was what Christianity was called in the early days, the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god, goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. But most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God write his word upon our hearts. Sometimes the best theology comes from the most unlikely source. And one of my favorite sources of unlikely theology comes from the great Bob Dylan, who sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that sounds a lot like Jesus, who said, no man can serve two masters, for either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will cling to one and despise the other. You're going to serve one, but you can't serve both. It also, the, the words of Dylan also have echoes of Paul in Romans 1 when he wrote that God has revealed himself in creation. 
that God has revealed himself in creation to all mankind, but people choose to worship the creation instead of the creator. Listen, friends, we were created for worship. Every single one of us, Christian, non-Christian, Every human being was created for worship. We were wired for worship, but in our fallen sinful condition, we do not naturally or instinctively worship God. Instead, we worship counterfeit gods. John Calvin wrote, both in his commentary on Romans as well as his institutes, that our hearts are forgers and factories of idols. Think about that. Our heart It's constantly inventing and creating idolatry. And Satan loves that. He loves it when we suppress our inherent knowledge of God and invent and worship counterfeit gods. There's no escaping this fact, though. We are, by God's design, worshipers. And over the last few chapters in Acts, we've seen the repeated worship of false gods counterfeit gods. In chapter 17, Paul was in Athens, and he confronted the Athenians over their worship of those Greco-Roman deities and all the shrines that he saw as he came into town. He even pointed out how they had invented an unknown god to worship in case the other gods didn't take. That was just two chapters ago, and now Paul's in Ephesus, and he's once again confronting counterfeit gods be it the false religion of the sons of Siva, who tried to co-opt Jesus for their own religious purposes, or the great crowds there in Ephesus who worshipped Artemis. Artemis was the, the great mother goddess. Worship is as natural as breathing. What we see in Ephesus, it may seem very archaic, This scene that's unfolding, it may seem very archaic, it it may seem unsophisticated. Who in their right mind would worship a god like Artemis? Artemis, in her earlier form, according to the mythology, was the protector of wild creatures. But like a Pokemon with more points, she had evolved over time, right? She was no longer the protector of wild creatures, but she she had become the great female mother goddess. And Ephesus was a place of pilgrimage. People would travel from all over the world to worship at the temple of Artemis, which was destroyed 400 years earlier, around 356 B.C. The temple of Artemis was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Even though the temple was destroyed, there was still a thriving business. We read about it with Demetrius. A thriving business in Ephesus where craftsmen would fashion shrines to Artemis as objects of worship. I don't know if you can see this. Years ago, I picked up this little Buddha statue. I was out traveling, and I saw it in a shop. And I picked up this Buddha statue, not as an object of worship, but as an object lesson. I keep it in my office, along with some other knickknacks, as a reminder to myself that people still worship false gods. And sometimes those gods are embodied in little statues like this. But many times... Those gods are more subtle and sophisticated. Tim Keller, in a wonderful book that I took the title of this sermon from, Counterfeit Gods, which I'll read from in a moment, he wrote in that book, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from the ancient ones. Each society has its shrines, whether office towers, 
spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of a good life. I doubt that any of you have an actual shrine set up in your home dedicated to the worship of a false god. But I suspect that all of us, every one of us, have some form of counterfeit God that we regularly bow the knee to. And this passage is all about the one true God supplanting all of those false gods that we worship. This passage is about God in Jesus destroying the counterfeit gods that we create. Again, to quote Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. What I want you to understand this morning is there's no neutral ground. When it comes to worship, there's no Switzerland. There's no neutral ground. There is no scenario where you do not worship and serve something. Everyone's a worshiper. God has made us to be. And either you will worship and serve the creator, the the God who has made himself known in creation, and, and more fully and completely in Jesus, or you'll worship a counterfeit God, a God of the world's making or a God of your own making. And so with that in mind, I have three things I want you to consider, three thoughts Um, that I want to share with you. First, I want you to consider the danger of counterfeit gods. The danger of counterfeit gods. The greatest danger of counterfeit gods is that they fill a space that was meant for the one true God, the God of Scripture, the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. Now, in Ephesus, at the time that Luke was writing this, The dominant counterfeit God was Artemis. The the Ephesians viewed God, you can go back and read some of their ancient writings during the destruction of the temple of Artemis 400 years earlier. They viewed Artemis as protector, sustainer, and source of blessing. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We know from Scripture those titles belong to God alone, that he is protector, he is sustainer, and he is the source of all blessing. And the problem for us today is not that we fill God's space with Artemis, but we fill it with other counterfeit gods, gods of our own making and choosing. You know, some folks treat the very earth itself as a god. They call it Mother Earth, which is a very similar title to what uh, Artemis took on. Some believe the earth will protect them, sustain them, and be the source of of resources and blessings. And that is exactly what Paul said would happen in Romans 1, that people will worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And people hold parades and literally bow down to the earth rather than ruling over it as God commanded in Genesis. So listen, be be a good steward of the earth. Take care of creation recognize that God gives you blessings from the earth, but do not worship the earth. Some folks do. Some folks treat politics and politicians as functional deities. Protector, sustainer, source of blessing. I've heard people in the last two weeks speak of politicians in those very terms. A few weeks ago, I was watching a YouTube video 
there's this goofball pastor in Dallas who said, if we don't elect so-and-so as president, I'm not going to tell you who he said. I don't want to get in trouble. If we don't elect so-and-so as president, then our nation is over as we know it. Now, I, I tried not to wade into the political waters all that often. You know that. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent. If you treat any political party or politician as a functional savior, then you have put them in a space reserved for God alone. Uh, and by the way, just as a side note, Christianity historically has never flourished when it was the dominant cultural majority. It has always flourished when it was a persecuted minority on the outskirts. Even here in Ephesus, even throughout the book of Acts, the believers were living under Roman rule. They were an outcast minority. They had no political power, and yet God worked through the church at this time to take the world by storm. So you don't have to have political power to see God at work. In fact, he most often works when we don't have such. But many folks, on the left and the right, treat a, a political party or a politician as a functional savior. This person will protect us. They will sustain us. They will give us abundant blessing. If, if they're not in control, then, then we're doomed. Those words are reserved for God and God alone. Perhaps you've crafted, forged, created a counterfeit God that is less tangible than the earth. The earth is certainly tangible, less tangible than a politician. Perhaps the God that you worship and serve is the opinion and approval of others. The, the Bible tells us in 1 John that God is love. That part and parcel to his nature is love. God is love. The Bible tells us in, in John's gospel that God loves the world. God is love, and Paul tells us in Romans that he has demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is love. He embodied it in Jesus, and he, he displayed it in Christ's work. But too many times we are, to quote Johnny Lee, looking for love in all the wrong places through in there, Bob Dylan. I got to th thank you, Richard. Right? We do that. We, we look for love in all the wrong places when God himself is love and has demonstrated it. It feels so good. It gives you an endorphin rush when that picture you post on Instagram blows up with likes. It feels so affirming when that pithy statement that you post on Facebook is liked and shared by others. In the same way that we were created to worship, we are created to love and be loved. God has created us to love and to be loved, and yet too often we make others into a functional God to get love from them, approval, when we were meant to get it from God alone. So I'll share a little confession in the spirit of what Connor said, being honest, I suppose. In about a month, a little less than a month now, I'm counting down the days, Kimbo and I are going to go on a little 20th anniversary trip. We're going to go to the Caribbean. 
and I've started working out again very regularly. <laughs> now, I'm not, I am not working out to be healthier. I am working out so that I don't look fat in the Instagram pictures that I plan to post in three and a half weeks. I'm, looking, I'm working out so that you will have a perspective of me, and I will, I will latch on to that approval. We'll consider this in a moment. Once we have named that false god, we must destroy it. So let's go get pizza after this, and we'll destroy that <laughs> idol. Um, each of these examples that I've given, and there are countless more, each of these examples, be it the earth, be it a politician, be it the approval and love of others, is not functionally different than Artemis. They are counterfeit gods that fill the place of the one true God. And do you know at least one thing that every counterfeit God has in common? They take our money. Or more accurately, we tithe to them. People will spend over $3 billion on the next presidential election. People spend over $16 billion annually on cosmetic surgery. But when God invades someone's life, and he supplants an idol, the business of idolatry dries up. And that's what happened in Ephesus. So what got Paul into so much trouble. The business of idolatry took a hit. Listen, Satan loves it when you tithe to counterfeit gods. He hates it when you give your money to the church for ministry and mission, when you put your priorities elsewhere, when you put your treasure where your heart is and your heart is fixed on Jesus. In the words of Demetrius here in the text, people will turn away from false gods that are made with hands. And the business of idolatry dries up. There's so many dangers of counterfeit gods. They take our time, our allegiance, our devotion, our money, our resources, and we give, we give them to whatever that God is in a space that's for God alone. Several years ago, <laughs> I, I noticed that I was drinking. It just it became, I, I was drinking about a half gallon of sweet tea a day. Now, I don't have to tell you that while sweet tea is good, drinking that much of it is not good, right? And I don't know why there's unsweetened tea. That's of the devil. Um, <laughs> But I, I noticed, this is maybe, maybe eight, ten years ago, I was drinking about a half gallon of sweet tea a day. And, and so, so then I started drinking tea that was sweetened with Splenda, but I was still drinking just as much of it. And then I read a report that Splenda can abnormally raise your insulin level. And I'm sure by now they've discovered that Splenda causes cancer in mice. You know, I never understood why mice would use artificial sweetener, but <laughs> my, my point is this. I had substituted one bad practice with another, right? That's all I had done. I had substituted one bad habit with another bad habit. And in a similar way, some people substitute worshiping a counterfeit God with a counterfeit Christianity, and that's just as bad. At the beginning of our passage, 
We see that God was doing extraordinary things through Paul. God was doing extraordinary things through Paul. People, people were coming to Paul for physical healing, and they were leaving Paul having been spiritually healed. There was even this interesting phenomenon where, uh, and by the way, it's, it's abnormal. It's not normal. We shouldn't expect it. Where uh, people were bringing handkerchiefs and pieces of cloth um, that, that had touched Paul, and they were using it as, as a healing tool. I think what we're meant to take away from these first few verses is that the power was not in the person or the object. It was from God. Look again at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary things by the hands of Paul. What we're to remember always is that, is that no matter what form these little things take, God is the one at work. And so God was doing extraordinary things, but nonetheless, there were some Jewish exorcists, and they took note of this, and they began to co-opt Jesus and his power for their own selfish purposes for casting out demons. Now, this is all really weird. Let me explain what was going on. During that time, during the first century, particularly in a place like Ephesus, you had traveling magic men. Traveling magic men who were ethnically Jewish, but in practice, they had blended Jewish teachings and teachings from the Old Testament with other pagan practices. And their philosophy was, was very pragmatic. If it works, we'll use it. And that's what they did. When they saw God, God doing extraordinary things through Paul, they said, if it works, we'll use it. And they saw Paul uh, casting out evil spirits and healing people. And so they figured they might as well use Jesus' name to their own benefit. And they said to this particular possessed man, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And I love the response of the Spirit. The Spirit said, I know Jesus. And I know Paul. But who the heck are you? The Spirit was saying, look, you don't have the power of Jesus because you don't have Jesus. And so co-opting him for your own false religious purposes means nothing. And many people substitute counterfeit gods with a counterfeit Christianity. And it's just as bad. Jesus isn't your therapist. He isn't your life coach. He isn't your get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus, as he's revealed himself completely in Scripture, is Lord. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And all false religion, all false religion, whether it's a false form of Christianity or something else, all false religion is about getting God to serve us rather than us serving God. And so you can baptize false faith with Christian phrases and Christian practices, but it doesn't make it true in living faith. And the Christian gospel, the Christian gospel is simple and straightforward. It is that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, and he is seated right now with God the Father on high. And his life and sacrifice demand our worship. And that's it. But when we take anything else and, and we, we put Christianity around the margins, 
We try to sprinkle Jesus and faith around our own purposes where God will serve us as opposed to us worshiping and serving him. All we've done is substituted a false God for a false Christianity. And that brings us to a third thought. The third thought is if, if there is a danger in worshiping false and counterfeit gods, whether gods like Artemis, this little Buddha that represents love, whether it's the opinion and approval of others, or whether it's taking the Christian faith and, and perverting it to something other than what Christ intended, what is the direction then of true and living faith? What's, what's the direction of true Christianity and living faith? Do you remember, um, I believe it's Exodus 32? Don't quote me on that, but I believe it is. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he discovered the people of Israel had, had taken their gold and jewelry and they had fashioned a golden calf as an object of worship, do you remember what Moses commanded the people to do when he discovered that? They had to grind it down and drink the powder. I'll take sweet tea. They had to destroy the idol and renew themselves to the worship of God. And friends, that's what, that's what we have to do. And it's a, it's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment process of destroying those idols that we craftily create and renew ourselves once again to the worship of God. You've heard the phrase, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Well, there should be a similar saying that those who worship counterfeit gods will be wounded by counterfeit gods. I think this has to be one of the more humorous scenes in the New Testament. This, this possessed man overpowers the sons of Sceva. He overpowers them, and he drives them out naked and wounded. When we worship false gods, we're wounded by false gods. And what we see, and it, it's sort of a sub-theme of all Scripture, false gods wound, the true God heals. Counterfeit gods and false faith, false faith will only rob you of life. It will never give life. The only one who can give spiritual life is the one who has given us physical life. Christ, through God, or God through Christ, is the creator. And all of those things they were looking at Artemis for, all of those things that we look for others to be, protector, sustainer, life giver, source of blessing, that is who God is for us. And so what we see is that when Jesus is shown as superior, when Jesus is juxtaposed with a false God and people see Jesus as superior, people are drawn to that. It's, it's what we see in verse 16 through 20. That, that, that when Jesus is shown to be better, superior, more worthy than a false God, people run to him. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you be drawn to the one who knows you better than you know yourself and yet still loves you? And that's really the fear. It's really why I'm going to the gym, because I'm afraid that if you see me as I actually am, that you won't love me. But Christ sees us as we are. And he knows us better than we know ourselves, and yet he loves us. 
Why wouldn't you be drawn to that? Why wouldn't you be drawn to the Savior who is love and who can perfectly love and has perfected his love in life, death, and resurrection? And what we see is they begin to extol Jesus. Verse 17, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing, acknowledging their idolatry and putting it to death. And the direction of true faith is seen at the end of verse 17 through verse 20. Jews and Greeks alike began to make much of Jesus. And those who had practiced false faith renounced their false gods. They named their counterfeit gods. They destroyed their pagan practices. They had a book burning and what we see in the midst of that is naming their idolatry and confessing Christ that the gospel prevailed. That when true religion, religion that's been revealed to us in Scripture, embodied in Christ, perfected in his gospel work, when true religion and true faith take root, it changes everything. It changes everything. That's what we see change and transformation happening in these people when this false God had wounded them and the true God was shown as superior, they were transformed. When the gospel takes root and when we begin to destroy those idols that we've created, it changes things. And no stone was left unturned. It changes how we approach politics. It changes how we approach politics when Christ takes root. It changes how we approach the approval and acceptance of others. It changes how we understand the Christian faith, that it's not about us, that it's about Jesus. And what we see here is that it is demonstrable. There is action that flows from it. That, that true worship is, is not simply what we do for these 40 uh, hour and 15 minutes here on Sunday mornings, that true worship spreads throughout life. And so I'll leave you with, uh, I think, a very good reading from Tim Keller from that book, Counterfeit Gods. Listen to this, and we will uh, we'll pray after that. Idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. Turning from idols is not less than those two things, but it is far more. Setting the mind and heart on things above, where your life is hidden with Christ in God, means appreciating, rejoicing, and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality and prayer. Jesus must become more beautiful to you, to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods. Friends, do you hear what he's saying? When we see Jesus as more beautiful and lovely than the approval of others, when we see Jesus as more beautiful and lovely than what a politician can provide for us, that's the only thing that will uproot the idol 
where Christ can take his rightful place. If you up, this, this is the last sentence, if you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, idolatry will always grow back. And so let's spend time this week, perhaps, asking God to not simply show us idols like this, those things that are obvious to all, but those that are more subtle, those that are more sophisticated, those that are less tangible. What, what, have, I, what have I put my hope in where Christ should be the source of hope? Let's name them. Let's seek by the power of the Spirit and the grace of Christ to destroy them. And let's put in that place the love of Christ and his gospel work. Let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, whether it was Artemis of the Ephesians, whether it was a golden calf, whether it's Instagram likes, whatever it might be, Lord, whatever our heart has forged and uh, we have created as, as, as a source of blessing and life, maybe even salvation. Would you reveal that to us? God, would you do the hard work of showing us our idols so that we might see them for what they are and see Jesus as more lovely? That's not something, that's not something that we can do on our own, have the strength or the power to do that. It's, it has to be your work within us. And so do that for us, we pray. And let us see Jesus as lovely, as beautiful. Let us, let us come to him daily, giving our lives in demonstrable ways to him. Worship that we see him as worthy and we give him what he is due. We, we believe that where our heart is, there our treasure will be also. And so perhaps that takes the form of money because we see Jesus as lovely. We, we structure our lives in that way. But the principle at play is whatever our heart is given to or centered on, our life will follow. And so let that be Jesus. And we'll ask this in his name. Amen.